overcoming addiction or especially with food, right? It's a long game. It's about following through one day at a time. It's about executing over the long term. I mean, this is why people can't lose their weight. They can change how they eat for a bit, but are they still doing it six months later? Probably not. Welcome to the Wellness Witch Podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, and I'm excited to take you on a journey to reclaiming and reconnecting to your magic, the magic of your health, your wealth, and your soul's purpose. As a woman's wellness coach and business mentor, I've been coaching women for over 15 years, helping them rediscover their innate abilities to heal, to transform, and to manifest their deepest desires. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of inspiration and information, diving into the multifaceted approach of what it means to live to our fullest potential. Let's do this. This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back to another episode on the Wellness Witch Podcast. Really thankful to have you here with me today and so excited to welcome back Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Brightline Eating, the official Brightline Eating cookbook, and Resume. She was here for episode 188, which is way back, one of our most downloaded episodes. And if you haven't tuned into that, highly recommend that you do. Such a juicy episode. We dive into the addiction component that is present in highly refined foods like sugar and flour, and how these substances ultimately hijack the brain to create unintended eating patterns. And today we are talking about not just food addiction, but how mental health can impact weight loss. We talk about personal rituals that have really aided individuals in their recovery, how daily affirmations can support overcoming addiction. We talk about common misconceptions with weight loss and mental health and how there can often be a connection between food addiction and other forms of addiction. There is so much juicy information in today's episode, and I just love this woman. She is so real and raw and honest and really dives deep into her story of addiction to cocaine and heroin and how she had a very profound breakdown which ultimately led to an amazing breakthrough. And I love her approach to weight loss and how she's really looking at it from a addiction standpoint and how we are really triggering different hormones and receptors in the brain that ultimately leads us on this kind of downward spiral to overeating and constantly being addicted to foods like sugar and flour and how we can ultimately break these patterns. We do talk about leptin resistance and leptin being such a master hormone for our cravings and our hunger. So good. I love this episode and I really can't wait to dive in. So without further ado, let's do that. Enjoy. Hi, Susan. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Samantha. So great to be here with you. You were one of our top three most downloaded episodes. So our audience, really? yes, you were here quite a That's while ago. So cool. Yeah. And our audience loves you and so resonates with your message. So I'm very excited to have you back. And to begin, because it's been a while since you've been here, I'd love it if you can just take a few minutes, get our audience to reconnect to you and the work that you do and all that you're up to. Oh, goodness. Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
where to be. I mean, I started using drugs when I was 14. I mean, really, that's kind of where it goes back to, yeah. right? I'm Susan Pierce Thompson. I'm the founder of Brightline Eating, and I help people, oh gosh, learn how their brain blocks them from losing weight. And I take an addiction approach to weight loss. So basically, I did. I started using drugs when I was 14. They escalated, got really out of control, crystal meth, cocaine, crack cocaine, dropped out of high school, funded it all with prostitution. And that was my life when I was 19 and 20 years old. I was a high school dropout. I was a prostitute. I was a crack addict. I had a moment of clarity in the crack house when I was 20, which was followed by the biggest miracle of my whole entire life, which is that I got taken to a 12-step meeting for drug and alcohol rehabilitation that very night by a cute guy that I met at a gas station <laughs> at three in the morning. He took me to a meeting. Wow. I got clean and sober. I haven't had a drink or a drug in 29 years. So that is the miracle of my life. And then my struggles with addiction were not over. I just right. started using food, mm -hmm. hardcore using food and ballooned up in size. But, but more than that, just really started years of painful binge eating and struggling with my weight, struggling with my food, knowing that my eating was way out of alignment, way out of control, but couldn't quite find the boundaries around it like I had with drugs and alcohol because you can't just stop eating. So I found the addiction with food uh, to be a much wilier beast. It was just really hard. And 12-step, you know, food meetings and stuff just up the wazoo, but but not really finding the peace that I needed. And um, did eventually, and that peace came with really clear boundaries around food, which I now call bright lines. And so my life completely changed after I started working the 12 steps. I went to community college. Yay for the community college system in <laughs> California. I was so grateful to be able to have an on-road back into society I transferred to UC Berkeley where I crushed it and got straight A's and spoke at the graduation. And I, I was doing so well, I think, because I was so interested in what I was studying. I was studying the mind and the brain in a field called cognitive science. And I ended up getting my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences and then doing a postdoc in psychology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and then became a psychology professor. So I taught psychology and you know neuroscience and brain and cognitive sciences courses for 16 years at the college level and that's what i was doing when the universe said to me write a book called bright line eating in my morning meditation almost 10 years ago the 10 year anniversary of that morning meditation session is coming up on january 26th Amazing. and i'm not sure when you'll be releasing this podcast but yeah january 26th 2014 was when that happened. And I, I set out to write that book and that, that impulse exploded into the worldwide bright line eating movement. And so now I, I educate people about food addiction. I help people who have a tricky relationship with food to get free to, you know, yeah, to lose weight, but really to get free, to get free. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I have all kinds of professional things that I'm involved with now, but that's the basic. That's the basic outline. Those are the basics. Yeah. It is such a powerful story that you have. So compelling and full of so many ups and downs and so much beauty and resiliency. Like it is just amazing. You know, one of the things that 
my friends and I, and even just in my community for all those who, who listened to your episode, one of the biggest things that kept coming up was it's crazy that she had this drug addiction that was, she was able to kick, but the challenge with the food addiction was the hardest. Right. You'd think crack cocaine would be the hardest or heroin or whatever. And I'm here to say food is harder. Food is harder. It's actually way harder. And it's not harder because it causes a more addictive response in the brain. Heroin and crack cocaine cause a more addictive response in the brain. But everything about their recovery is just a lot easier. It's easier that you can quit categorically and never be unclear about whether you're using it or not, pretty much. You know, there are some places, like as a recovering drug addict, I took Vicodin after my first C section. So, okay, little gray area. You know, I drink, I don't actually, but if if I did drink NyQuil or DayQuil or something, you know what I mean? Like, I actually had this moment where I was binging on raw cookie dough and realizing how much of that vanilla extract I was dumping into the raw cookie dough and had a damn near panic attack wondering if I'd broken my alcohol sobriety. So there are moments of ambiguity, but like the albatross, the plethora of lack of clarity around food sobriety and what that means is a nightmare. And oh, by the way, you know, cues and commercials and multi-billion dollar infrastructure trying to hook you and and keep you engaged, nonstop social pressure everywhere you turn with people trying to get you to use your drug of choice again and ridiculing you. Like, God bless them, like well-meaning people actually ridiculing you Mm -hmm. for trying to keep your food boundaries, Mm -hmm. like shaming you, ridiculing you, trying to make you feel bad about taking care of yourself with food. Like there's nothing like that kind of pressure when you get off something like crack cocaine. You go back to society, everyone's glad you're clean. Nobody's trying to get you to use again. I mean, the people who would do that are the people you can just cut out of your life and be glad that you do. You know what I mean? Like it's really so much easier. And then also the level of cues in your day that trigger use with food are unparalleled. Cigarettes comes close. Like if you're walking out of a movie theater, you're cued to smoke a cigarette, you know, but really if you think about when and where you're cued to eat addictively, it's almost everywhere, you know, like you're in the office and suddenly coffee with cream and sugar feels like the next right thing. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, it's everywhere. And so, yeah, there's just nothing like it in the addiction world. There's absolutely nothing like it. And then plus the addictive infrastructure in your brain is layered on top of circuitry that already was wired in to make you think that procuring and consuming food had to be your every waking moment obsession because, oh, by the way, it did have to be for you to, you know, for your ancestors to survive 5,000 years ago finding, consuming, procuring food had to be the dominant obsession of your whole life. So the infrastructure that's being hijacked is just way more primitive and way more intense. There is no, I need cocaine to survive infrastructure, right? Like it just doesn't exist in that same way, right? So food is the hardest. Food is the hardest. It seems silly, right? That donuts would be harder than crack, but they are. It's so wild. So going back to your journey into the 12-step world, did you 
have a relapse or was it just you went one time and done? You were committed Thank you, to God. The I never relapsed. I was just a day one baby. And I went to that first meeting. I got a 24-hour coin. I didn't even know kind of what it was. Like I didn't get it really. Right. I was like, what what we're all in this big church basement. And but I went back with that guy the next week, even though he actually ended up being kind of lame, as cute as he was, he was super like not <laughs> not that great. But I went back with him the next week and then I didn't get a wheat coin. I was really devastated about that. I couldn't believe they expected me to get 30 days to get another coin. I was like 30 days in a row like including weekends? Do they have any idea how much it took me to not drink or use for these seven days? And right. then I went to Paris with all the money. I had all this cash in a drawer from, I was a very successful call girl. I was making a lot of money as a call girl. And so I went to Paris with all the money that I had in a drawer and spent it all and stayed sober and clean in Paris. And then I had, I think, 23 days clean and sober. And I moved in with my mom. I was 20. I went to community college and I think I had like 27 days of sobriety when I looked up other meetings in the phone book. Like this was before the internet, right? right? So I just looked up other meetings in the phone book and I started going to meetings regularly. And then I, I started going to like two meetings a day wow. and started working the 12 steps. And I've never had a relapse on drugs or alcohol. Thank you, God. I've relapsed with food. I've relapsed with cigarettes. I've relapsed with caffeine. I've relapsed with certain unhealthy individuals that I have no business being in a relationship with. Right. I've relapsed with those things, but never with drugs or alcohol. So there must have been, because you said, you know, you saw this guy in a gas station. He's kind of like, you know, the one who really opened this gateway for you. But there must have been this willingness or this deep desire of, yes, it's time. I'm ready. Because I feel like most addicts are just, they're offered the support, but they don't take it because there's just not a willingness to really recover. Well, that was the miracle was that that morning I'd had that moment that had created that willingness. So earlier that day, before my very first meeting with that guy, that day was a Tuesday. And earlier that day, 9 or 10 a.m. that Tuesday morning, August 9th, 1994, I came to, like, not that I had been asleep or passed out. I had just been sleepwalking through life as so many of us are all the time. Suddenly, I came to awake, alert, present, clear, online, on point, and I was in a crack house with a blonde wig on my head, a shaved head and a blonde wig on my head with a mini skirt on. I'd been there for days, smoking crack nonstop for four or five days, all weekend long, like since last Friday. And it was now Tuesday morning. And there was still more crack rock on the table. There was a couple kicking heroin over to my left. Joe Brown, whose room it was, it was like a seedy, gross, pay by the hour slash day slash week slash month hotel at the corner of Mission and South Van Ness in San Francisco, the Mission Hotel. I don't even know if the place is still around. It was gross. Cockroaches, the whole nine yards. And suddenly I'm there and I'm 20 years old and I've dropped out of high school years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, how did I get here? Like I had no idea. And it was like this, it was like a creeping non-choice being there. I didn't I had no idea how I'd let my life get like that. And I 
I remembered in that moment, it, it literally felt like I was at this fork in my life. And I remembered being a kid and thinking I was going to go to Harvard and, you know, get a PhD in astrophysics. And I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I was a kid or an actress. Like I, you know, I remember these dreams I'd had when I was a kid. And then here I was prostituting and I'd already been through several rounds of quitting drugs and cleaning up and quit, you know, and then using relapsing again and getting into that cycle. And I had this moment where I knew it wasn't a voice. It wasn't a, it wasn't a booming thing in my head, but suddenly it was a knowing that was so clear. I knew that if I didn't get up and get out of there right that moment, this was all my life was ever going to be, was an endless cycle of relapsing and going back to prostitution and drugs over and over and over again forever. I didn't feel like I was going to die. I felt like I was going to live like that forever. And I sat there for a few long beats of moments, soaking up the awareness of the trajectory of my life and an unknown get out of here right now or a endless cycles of relapsing with drugs and prostitution. And I just sat there and then I grabbed my jacket and I walked out the door. I didn't say goodbye to anybody. I just left. And I actually didn't have a place I was living then. I didn't have a key to a place anywhere. And so I went over to this guy, Baltazar's house. He's the guy that I had the drawer of cash and he was a billionaire, so he didn't need my cash. So I, I yeah, anyway, so I went over to Baltazar's house, penthouse apartment in San Francisco, just up Van Ness Street. And I must have looked horrible because he opened the door and like just looked disgusted at me. And then he just like shooed me away to the back bedroom because he was busy doing business on his fax machine to Tokyo. And I slept and I showered and I felt pretty good. And I put my pager on my hip to go back to working that night as a call girl. And that's when that guy took me to the meeting that night. So what I thought was that I was just going to stop now. I was going to quit. Right. But I know looking at my life and looking at my history that I, I had, you know, 50-50 odds of making it a week without my first beer and, you know, 99.999% chance that I was not going to make it a month, you know, right. uh, off drugs or alcohol. But I thought I was quitting. That's what I thought. And then it was that first meeting that happened that night. That Crazy. night I got taken to a meeting and got a new set of tools, a new way to live. Would you call it divine intervention? Yes. And I think it was my grandma. So mm. my grandma, my my mother's mother had died in March. This was August. She had died March 4th. And the night she died, I was prostituting myself for cocaine at this guy's apartment who he was gross. And yeah, he was just disgusting. I had been with him before, but he just, I was there for his cocaine, but he just wanted me to take my clothes off and I didn't want to keep taking my clothes off. And we were in this standoff of like, he wanted more clothes off. I wanted more cocaine right. and my grandma died. And I think she came and saw me there and she had no idea how bad things had gotten. Mm. And she lived in San Diego. I lived in up in San Francisco, right? So she knew about my drug use in the past, but I had been in a lull in an interlude of having cleaned up when she died. So she thought I was good and and I wasn't. I had I was back at it, right? right? And so she got up to the great 
beyond, right? And she was like, oh, no, we need some help on this girl. We need some help on this girl. And I think it was really starting around March that I started freebasing cocaine, which led to the crack, which led to a whole different level of addiction. And I actually think I maybe got kicked down toward a lower bottom. So I would be ready to like smack the bottom and turn around. And I think that it all was orchestrated by my grandma. I was her only grandchild, her only grandchild and the apple of her eye. Mm. And I think her spirit coordinated it all. That's what I think. That's really beautiful. That really is. Many of you have reached out asking why I put myo-inositol in my coffee. Now, myo-inositol is closely related to the B vitamin family. It does have this mild sweet taste and it mixes very, very well with water. So you can definitely just drink it on its own. And because it has that little bit of sweetness, this is why I like to add it to my coffee. Now, it has many benefits. It promotes healthy glucose metabolism. It promotes ovulatory function. So it's going to support egg quality as well as menstrual regularity, especially if you are dealing with PCOS. And it's been studied clinically for use in eating disorders, mood imbalances, and it's also great for cardiovascular health. So it's really great for hormonal and metabolic conditions because it's supporting healthy glucose metabolism. And it's also found in abundance in the brain. Inositol is involved in neural signaling and the healthy regulation of several hormones and neurotransmitters. So I use one scoop, add it into my coffee, mix it in. It dissolves really, really well, and it's going to be beneficial for your health, your hormones, your metabolism, and so many amazing benefits from just using one scoop a day. My go-to is the Amayo Inositol Powder from Canprev. You can head on over to canprev.ca to learn more about them, and you can also find Canprev across Canada at all local health food stores. And if you are in the US, you can search online for them. And I just so need to acknowledge you for being so vulnerable and transparent. And it's in sharing these stories that we heal and we find pieces of ourselves. I think so. Thank you. You know, there's this research study that looked at Holocaust survivors and Vietnam War veterans and the rates of PTSD among those two groups mm -hmm. and how there's so much PTSD in Vietnam War veterans and very low rates actually of PTSD among Holocaust survivors. And what they attributed it to was the sharing mm -hmm. that Holocaust survivors do about their time in the Holocaust because right. everyone wants to hear about it. Yeah. Everyone wants to hear about it. And the depth of the stories that they end up sharing for all of our benefit versus the holding it inside that Vietnam War vets end up doing out of shame, out of a society that rejected them coming back from the war and so forth. And, um, you know, I've worked the 12 steps like 17 times on this stuff. Right. Like I've inventoried it a lot. And I wasn't sure when I started Brightline Eating that I was going to be open about the prostitution bit. What I find is I just talk more and more about it as time goes on. It just gets easier and easier. I really don't care anymore. But right. I see it being helpful to people, yeah. right? There there are a lot of people who have, you know, whatever, and it doesn't feel hard. It doesn't feel hard. It actually feels fabulous. I don't know why it does, but it does. Yeah. I feel proud. I feel triumphant. I feel grateful. I feel clean and clear and aligned. I know who I am today. Sure. Nobody can find out anything about me that is going to make me wince. So it doesn't right. matter. Yeah. And, you know, I am actually supporting someone in my life right now who's coming from 
you know, a life of prostitution. And really she's been sex trafficked is what it is. You know, she was passed around to her family when she was a kid and she comes to me and she asks questions like, how did you give up prostitution? How were you able to do that? You know, and she trusts me because I have some experience with it, not like she does in that same way, but it it is kind of the foundation of my life. And it's the backbone of the 12 step movement is we go through stuff, we struggle and we find a way out. And then we turn around and we spend the rest of our lives helping other people with that same struggle. And I just think it's such a beautiful formula for life. Yeah, I would agree. So switching gears a bit, your book on this bright day, what compelled you to write this? Well, I always knew that this book was going to need to exist. This book is one of those daily meditation readers, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. it's a, you know, there's a page for every day of the year. And, you know, there are a lot of daily meditation readers out there. And I use the word meditation lightly. It's like it's like a page to reflect on. It's right. like a page of wisdom for the day, yeah. right? This this one starts with a quote at the top. Then there's a couple paragraphs of stuff. There's a topic at the top. Then a quote. Then a couple paragraphs, and then a mantra, like a like a prayer or a mantra or a a positive message to send you out. That starts on this bright day. On this bright day, mm-hmm. I will mm-hmm. you know fill in the blank. And you know there are a lot of those books. I love them. I love daily readers. I read this one now every morning. I'm really enjoying it. It's funny. You'd think it would be weird having, you know, obviously I'm not familiar with, uh, right? (laughs) But I'm loving it. I'm actually (laughs) loving it. And and it feels fresh and new each day. I'm like, you know, somehow that's one of the cool things about a book like this is 366 is a lot of entries. So it always feels fresh and new each day, even if you've been reading it for years. And then at night I read a Rumi one, Mm. A Year with Rumi by Coleman Barks. And I read a I read a Rumi poem every night. And I, you know, I started my 12-step life with, I think, the book Just for Today, the Narcotics Anonymous Reader, which is a really good one. Okay. I know Overeaters Anonymous has a good one. But, you know, people are in different places around gendered language for God, around right. Christian sounding God stuff, around even the 12 steps, around stuff like that. And so this is the only daily reader for people who don't want to eat the standard American diet, for people who are clear that they're doing something else with their food. And there is kind of a solidarity that we all share being clear that taking care of ourselves with food in a way that's different than going with the standard, you know, sick Western diet culture encourages us to do. And so this book was written for everyone who wants to start their day with a message Mm -hmm. in alignment with their best and brightest selves. So it's basically like little daily affirmations I love. Can you explain the importance of those daily affirmations specifically in overcoming addiction? Well, overcoming addiction or especially with food, right? It is it's a long game. It's about following through one day at a time. It's about executing over the long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why people can't lose their weight. They can change how they eat for a bit, but are they still doing it six months later? Probably not, right? right? And so having a daily reader that gives us a dose of that mental reorganization, that clarity, that commitment, that like that feeds back to us our desires and commitments from whenever it was that we bought the book a few months or years ago, right? right? (laughs) 
but that can be there by the bedside or I keep mine on the back of my toilet tank, right? So first thing in the morning, mm. I pee. I don't know what else I'm doing that day, <laughs> right. but I know I'm peeing first thing in the morning. There are a few, few things as guaranteed in life as the morning pee, right? So that's where my book lives. And so I just always look forward to reading it every day. And then you get this, this magical little dose of medicine and aspiration every morning. It's perfect. I love it so much. So you talk a lot about like rituals, like these are your daily rituals. I definitely know I have my own. I almost kind of see them as like a daily ceremony and it's little things. It's like how I make my coffee in the morning and I just take that time and I'm really present with it. And it's part of my morning routine. And I also know myself really well. If I don't schedule in that workout first thing of the morning, it is not happening later in the day as time goes on. And so personal rituals have really supported me in my overall health and well-being. And I'm just really curious. I'm sure you have so many stories that you could probably share of how personal rituals have really supported others in their food addiction and their recovery. And curious if you can share some of that. Absolutely. This is what Brightline Eating is founded on, basically, is those rituals, those habits, the automaticity of it. I think the number one, actually, that we teach people is write down your food the night before. So in Brightline Eating, we take a moment after dinner, we write down what we're going to eat for the next day. Mm -hmm. And there's research showing that just writing down your food, even after you've eaten it, is helpful. But writing down your food before you eat it is a whole different ballgame. For sure. Because the night before, the part of your brain that's going to seek out the most calorie-dense, rewarding, sexy food isn't online, right? The part of your brain that's thinking things like, what needs to be eaten up in the fridge? <laughs> you know, that's the part of your brain that's online. Right. And especially if you have a, a meal plan template like we give to you in Brightline Eating, where the categories of what you're going to eat for each meal are really clear, suddenly writing down your food is really simple mm -hmm. because you know what you're looking for. You know you know that at every meal, you're going to have a, a serving of protein. If it's breakfast, you're going to have some fruits and grain. It's like really simple. You know yep. what you're going to eat right. and you're just picking the things. So there's that. In Brightline Eating, we're really big on morning and evening habit stacks. Like I loved how you were mapping out some of the things in your morning habit stack, the making the coffee, the exercise, mm -hmm. right? I meditate every morning for 30 minutes. That's a big one for me. I read my daily reader. Mm -hmm. I open my Aura Ring app mm -hmm. and I check my stats. <laughs> <Same. laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. totally. And for me, I have phone calls actually that I do first thing in the morning as well. Um, I'm an extrovert. And so I build in some human connection first thing in the morning, 15 minute phone calls. Um, and, you know, nighttime, I do a five-year journal which is an incredible tool. Have you discovered the five-year journal, Samantha? I'm aware. I haven't done it. Or I guess I can. I do it in my own way, but I'm, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, well, January 1st is coming up. You might want to get yourself a five-year journal. journal. Okay. So the five-year journal is really cool. It's got a page for each day of the year. You know, like the pages are dated, right? January 1st, you know, February 8th, March 10th. And then each page is segmented horizontally. So so you're not journaling a whole page. You're just journaling maybe five or six or seven lines. And you write the year up top and then you you write, you encapsulate the day however you want to. You want to write how you were feeling or what you did or what you're, you know, what whatever you want to put on there. Right. I always just write what I did that day. Right. And then when you get to the next year, mm -hmm. you get to read what you wrote exactly that day totally. a year ago. Yep. 
so it's so fun. Like I'm, I'm on year three of this journal. I've been doing it faithfully now for 13 years. So I'm on year three of this journal. It's so cool. And just saying like my youngest daughter, Maya is 12. So I have literally, I have this one. What is that one? The five minute journal. For a second, I was like, wait, is it the five year journal? No, but I knew it was five something. That's why I'm like, I have to check. Okay. Open it up. What is it? What, what's the deal with the five minute? Yeah. Journal? So the five minute journal, if you can see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, yeah, little... it starts the date, and then there's a little quote at the top, and then three lines for I'm grateful for, three lines for what would make today great, and then you write your own little affirmation beginning with I am, and then there's a little section for the evening time, three amazing things that happened today, and then how could I have made it even better? And you okay. and you just do it for one for one day. Nice. Okay. So it's a morning and evening thing. That's really sweet. That's really sweet. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, No, that's okay. (laughs) That's totally cool. But like- You've been doing it for three years. Yeah. Yeah. I've just been doing it. Yeah. It's just like almost every night I'll say to my husband, like pop quiz, right? A year ago today. Mm. And he'll go, don't tell me, you know? (laughs) And it's just hilarious. Like I've written down things. I was was saying that my daughter, Maya, my youngest, Maya is, is 12. And so I've literally been journaling every day of her life. I never miss. I never, I've, I've missed like once or twice in 13 years. Amazing. Like I basically never miss. Wow. And, and that means I have a record of her whole life, you know, yep. and my twins are 15. So I don't have a record of the, early, which is too bad because they were born weighing one pound. So I wish I had wow. a record of, I've got a record of that through an online tool we were using called Care Pages, which was a medical record that we sent out every day that they were in the NICU for four months. Oh I was God. writing in that. But anyway, at night, I, I do my roomy reading. I do my five-year journal. I read a couple pages of recovery literature. And yeah, and that's my nighttime. But right. but those anchor points in my day being ritualized like that, it really matters. It really matters. It's mm-hmm. very grounding. It's very reassuring there's a lot of identity reinforcement there. You know, my identity is as a recovering addict. You know, I, I am a human being in long-term, beautiful, flourishing recovery. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. That's who I am. And I still have really strong addictive tendencies. As a matter of fact, last week, I fell in with decaf coffee. And you're going to laugh at me because like, I can't even handle caffeine. I can't handle decaf. Right. I went back on decaf and I started driving to Starbucks at six in the morning and buying four decaf grande Americanos, four, walking <laughs> out with the little tray because I didn't have time to drive back and forth to Starbucks all day. And I work from home and my oh, home Keurig decafs aren't strong enough. So I'm buying four decaf grande Americanos at six in the morning at Starbucks, all for me, That's home and microwaving them all throughout the day. It took me about a week and then I quit again. And I made a stick contract, which is a <laughs> behavioral contract for no decaf for a year. God bless me. I'm freaking certifiable. I mean, I, I really have hardly ever known a, a brain as addictable as mine. It's ridiculous. But at the same time, a brain that's also so powerful in committing to changing the habit. Yeah, totally. Need to be because I got, I got, I'm up to stuff in this world. Yeah. So I can't be spending all my time drinking, you know, diesel fuel from Starbucks. <laughs> like that's a waste of my. Yeah. So side note, Starbucks decaf is very strong. Like I drink coffee at home and I'm very particular about the coffee I drink. But when I go there, their decaf, like my heart is racing. And I'm like, did I order a full calf? No, that was it's not really decaf, right? Like, let's be real. I don't think it's really, I think it's like maybe half calf. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Okay. I have so many questions for you. And there's so many routes that I can take here. Food addiction 
and its connection with other forms of addiction. Have you found there to be a connection between food addiction and any other forms? So all forms of addiction are connected and they're connected through something called cross addiction, which is where when the dopamine receptors are downregulated in the nucleus accumbens, right, that addictive pathway in the brain, the mesolimbic reward pathway, when those receptors are depleted, they don't really care where they get their hit from. Mm. So if you put down you know, the ice cream, then maybe you want some coffee. If you put down the coffee, maybe you want a cigarette. If you put down the cigarette, maybe you want a one click or two click or three click on Amazon. If you put that down, maybe you want to text that old boyfriend because maybe he's lingering around and wants to get laid tonight, right? (laughs) So there's so many ways that that brain can get its fix, right? So yeah, it's called cross addiction. And so there is sort of a process when you are in recovery of first of all, being vigilant about like, be aware that your brain might look for it in other places. This is one of the reasons that alcohol is not on the bright line eating plan, not just because alcohol is pretty much sugar and having your inhibitions lowered is going to make you more likely to eat stuff. And not to mention that, you know, when you're on a weight loss food plan, you don't have extra calories to be spending on stuff like alcohol. You need nutrient dense stuff for all of that because you need to make sure you're getting your nutrition from the store of calories. But it's not just that. It's also if you have an addictive relationship with food, you really have no business drinking alcohol as Mm -hmm. you're trying to put that down, right? right? Because of the cross addiction thing. So, but the interesting thing is that people with addictive tendencies or what I call a susceptibility to an addiction, right? Like whether it's genetic or otherwise, it can be environmental as well. But people who've developed that addictive susceptibility aren't necessarily addicted to everything, but they're potentially addicted to everything. But their brain would have to wire up a noticing of the the cues and effects of those cues, the cues and behavioral responses and wire up the awareness of like, oh, those cues were present. We did this. We got this hit in that domain over time for someone to develop the addiction to that. So I've been mercifully free of shopping addiction in my life thus far, but I'm susceptible, right? Mm -hmm. Potentially. I've been mostly free of gambling addiction. I had a little bit of a blackjack habit when I was a teenager and a little bit, I was a little too good at pool. That was a little gambling-ish, but mostly I have not gone down the rabbit hole with gambling. Pretty much every other addiction I've had. Mm. So yeah, that's kind of how the addiction to other things kind of, that's the story there. Right. But yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. For sure. Just going back to the personal rituals for a second. I'm assuming that the rituals that you have, these are things that you've built over time. You didn't just come in one day and it was like all of the things. So for right. somebody totally not. who is sort of just starting this weight loss journey and building in these personal rituals and might feel really overwhelmed by like, whoa, Susan, you do yeah. you know 50 different rituals in a day. I don't know if I can commit to that yeah. and some of the resistance to that. Like where does somebody really start? Like what are the most important ones to start with? I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. So the food comes first. You do the food piece first. And the core of the food rituals are you write down your food the night before. So I recommend getting a food journal. We sell a great one in Brightline Eating. You don't have to get ours. Mm -hmm. Any little line journal will work or an app that you can write stuff in. Right. You're going to write down your food the night before. You're going to commit it. And what that means is share it with someone, Mm. text it to a friend, ideally someone else who does bright line eating, something like that. Or in, if you do our programs right in our online support community, or we've got a very specific 
place in our platform where you commit your food, right? You're going to commit it. So some public way of saying, this is what I'm committed to eating. Right. And then the next day you're going to eat only and exactly that. Like really literally only and exactly. That is exactly what you eat. And that is your one job in life is just to eat only and exactly that for a bit. And you really build up that muscle over time. And you do that core stellium of things, those three things every day for a while before you worry about anything else. I love that. For the month of December, I am offering 50% off our Naturally Nourished Hormones program. If you've been dealing with hair loss, gaining weight, you are noticing shifts with your menstrual cycle, you are feeling exhausted, craving sugar, your sex drive is low, and your sleep isn't great, Naturally Nourished is for you. This is the blueprint that is going to help you balance your hormones, optimize your thyroid, and heal your metabolism without feeling restricted, deprived, counting calories, or having to invest in expensive supplements. Head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash naturally nourished. At checkout, use the coupon code 2023 to save 50% off the program until December 31st. Really excited for you to begin your naturally nourished journey. So you speak about automaticity. Which is so important because I've worked with so many clients over the years in the nutrition and wellness space. And the thing that I often see is like, I need variety. I can't just eat this all the time. You know, I want to eat this thing over here. Do you have a alternative for it? And that actually ends up kind of backfiring on us. So I'd love if you could speak to that. It does. It does backfire. And you know, the Bright Line Eating Food Plan is really, really great for this because, first of all, it might seem really restrictive because we don't eat any sugar or flour in Bright Line Eating. Mm-hmm. It's not keto, it's just no sugar, no flour. But every whole real food, every single one is on the Bright Line Eating Food Plan. Right. Literally every protein, every dairy, every nut, every seed, every grain, every vegetable, every fruit right. is on the Bright Line Eating Food Plan. Right. So it's hardly restrictive. And it's got this great structure of categories and quantities. So if you decide, oh, I want to eat blah, 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 it's like, well, you can do that. Like you can get that food slotted into the food plan. And it is great to have a lot of consistency in what you eat. And what's interesting is the point of it backfiring is really apropos. People tend to be very bright for breakfast and lunch and then struggle more at dinner and after dinner and stuff. And I think one of the reasons is we don't necessarily think of routine with dinner the way we would with breakfast. Like a lot of people will get into a routine where breakfast is, you know, oatmeal, yogurt, and banana or something. And that's what they're having every morning, oatmeal, yogurt, banana, oatmeal, yogurt, banana. But then dinner is like all over the map, different things. And there's research showing that one of the things that allows the brain to relax and let us release our weight, like let our weight come down without fighting us with a hormonal assault to drive us back up to that former high weight. One of those main things is the simplicity of our food. Mm. So simplicity, meaning fewer ingredients, more similarity, more routine, fewer spices and condiments, like salt and pepper, your food, that's fine. But like try to just keep your food simple. Like someone looking at your plate of food should have no problem going, oh, I see what that is. Mm. It's a bunch of green beans, a grilled chicken breast, and a salad. Like I see that. That's dinner, right? 
as opposed to like, oh, what's that? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I'd love to talk a little bit about mental health because I am sure just like mental well-being overall, because it's taxing going through this journey of weight loss or just, yeah, (laughs) yes, life. It's very taxing. And the mental and emotional toll that it takes our life, but our, you know, our weight, our overconsumption or overconsuming thoughts of food and what I eat and how I look. And that is mentally draining. And I know women are carrying these stories for years, for years, 20, 30, 40 plus years of how they look and what they eat and how they should look and all of the things. So if we could just chat a little bit about how you approach treating food addiction with maybe a focus on mental well-being. Yeah. Great question. Okay. Let me think. I want to bring up a couple points here. One is that weight loss is exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. It's also physically taxing because as your fat cells shrink, they push out all the toxins they've been storing. Mm. And the fat cells themselves are the holders of toxins in the body. So when they start to shrink and just dump those toxic contents into the bloodstream because they just don't have room for them anymore, the body's processing a lot of toxic waste. And so drinking a lot of water and just resting a lot is really important. And this is where in Brightline Eating, we actually recommend people just relax about getting to the gym. Like they just Mm. take a load off and let the food become automatic for a bit put on bunny slippers, be very gentle with yourself and really think of yourself kind of in rehab for a bit, you know, and let the weight just fall off. It'll just fall off your body and just don't take on any extra projects. Really be gentle with yourself during the weight loss phase. So that's the first thing. The other thing I want to say about mental health, and I don't ever hear anyone talking about this but me, so I really want to help your folks understand this. If you have been someone who has chronically dieted or tried to get a hold of a persnickety, out-of-control food and weight issue, the repeated failure of that is a very interesting dynamic. First of all, I want to say the failure comes from a hijacked brain, not from any choice to break your food plan. It looks and feels like you've been choosing That pizza on a Friday night when you know better and you don't want to be doing that, but you end up ordering it anyway and the takeout is arriving and you don't know, you know, like, darn it, I wasn't supposed to do this. Right. But the reality is that a hijacked brain that's got dopamine down regulation and leptin resistance on board, that brain literally believes you're starving and it's not going to allow you to calorie restrict over time any more than it would allow you to oxygen restrict while you hold your breath and try to run upstairs. And oh, by the way, if you try to hold your breath and run upstairs, what will happen is you will breathe before you get to the top of the stairs. Even if, let's say it's 50 flights of stairs, right? Even if a billion dollars in cash were waiting for you at the top of those 50 flights of stairs, you still wouldn't make it holding your breath up. And what would happen along the way is your brain would convince you that you decided to breathe. You decided to abandon ship and breathe. It It would feel like that in your mind, that you chose that breath. Well, we can all agree that if a billion dollars in cash were on the 50th floor, you didn't really choose to breathe. You were forced to breathe, Right. right? 
And so your brain is convincing you that you have to eat this stuff because it thinks you're starving. It's not going to let you calorie restrict. It convinces you to eat. It dupes you into thinking you chose it. But then you're left watching the evidence of the failed attempts and having to make a story about yourself that makes sense. And over time, you come to conclude that you must not love yourself. You must not value yourself. You must not be trustworthy. You must have deep-seated psychological issues that are leading you to break your promises to yourself. And that is an incredibly big burden to live with. And it creates a lot of psychological mental health issues, really, that in bright line eating, when we heal your brain, because we know how to heal our plan actually very quickly within eight weeks, heals dopamine downregulation, heals leptin resistance, and gets your brain from day one not fighting you anymore. And then as you watch yourself, write down what you're going to eat the night before and then stick to it you start to be able to tell a story of about yourself of like, oh, I am trustworthy. Oh, maybe I do love myself a lot more than I thought. Maybe I am actually the capable, kind to myself and others, competent, confident person I always thought I was and wanted to be right. in the food and weight domain as well as all these other domains that I already knew I was pretty good at, right? Right. And it heals up a lot of mental health issues just to get this food thing straight, finally. That was such a great analogy of that. I love how you broke that down. Thank you. Can we talk a little bit about leptin resistance? Because especially in the weight loss hormone space, we talk a lot about estrogen and progesterone and thyroid and all of the things, but leptin resistance, especially just leptin on its own is what actually helps to signal the thyroid and it supports sex hormone production. It's kind of like from the top down approach, which I feel like this conversation isn't often had. So can we talk a bit about leptin, leptin resistance, yeah. what it is, what's happening there? Leptin is the Mac Daddy hormone. Yeah. If you've got a weight issue, you need to know about leptin. So if you look out in the world, I'm looking out my window right now in my home office and uh, there's always deer. I live like basically adjacent to a park here and there's just all these deer. Amazing. And it's, it is incredible. And they're never fat, even a little bit, right? Ever nor are any mammals in the wild right. ever fat unless they live in an amusement park or something, right? Like right. unless they're eating our French fries. Right. So the reason that mammals other than humans or maybe our pets that we're feeding, right, never, ever, ever develop weight issues is because of leptin. Leptin is the hormone that regulates body composition and it regulates body fatness. It regulates body energy expenditure. And here's how it works. The minute you've eaten enough that your fat cells take on a little bit more fat, a little bit of plumpness, those fat cells release more leptin. So leptin comes out from the fat cells, circulates back to the brain, to the hypothalamus and to the brainstem to say, we've got plenty of fuel on board. Now it's time to use that fuel to go, you know, get active, to do things like, I don't know, build a hut find a mate, kill a wildebeest, go do something right. with this energy that will ensure your survival, right? And that feedback mechanism keeps us at a perfect body weight. So what's going on? How come our brains are allowing us to get fat? It doesn't make any sense. Right. It turns out we've discovered over, leptin was discovered in 1994. And in those roughly 30 years, we've discovered three things that block 
the brain from seeing leptin. It's called leptin resistance, right? That we've got plenty of leptin, but the brain can't see it. And when the brain can't see your leptin, it literally thinks you're starving. It literally thinks you're underweight. It thinks you're wasting away. And its job now is to force you to eat because your life depends on it. That's what your brain is thinking. Even though you might be 200 or 300 or 400 pounds, right. your brain is assuming you're starving to death. Okay. So what are those three things that are blocking leptin at the brain? One is high baseline insulin levels. Mm. The second is high inflammation, especially inflammation in the ventromedial nucleus of the hypothalamus. But you can th- just think of it as systemic inflammation, mm. but high inflammation. And then the third is high triglycerides. Mm. Those three things are blocking the brain from seeing the leptin. And so as long as leptin is being blocked, your brain assumes you're starving. And again, we go back to you can no more will yourself to calorie deprive in that state than you can hold your breath while you run up 50 flights of stairs. It's never happening. Not over time. You can do it for a meal, but you can't do it for six months. Right. Right. And that's the thing is that the willpower, leptin, brain connection happens in the time course of weeks and months, not minutes and seconds. So it's harder to notice that your brain is tricking you into eating the way you can. I mean, probably you've never noticed that when you hold your breath, your brain dupes you into believing you decided to breathe, right? right? It's kind of a freaky thing. But yeah, that's the deal with leptin. And so when you start the bright line eating way of eating very, very quickly, inflammation, triglycerides, and baseline insulin levels come down. And so we have data showing that hunger, this insatiable hunger that is the hallmark of leptin resistance, goes down steadily within the first two months on bright line eating down to little or no, little or no hunger anymore ever, even though people are still losing weight. Their hunger levels go down and down and down and down and down. And this is why you can't lose weight. Sorry, Weight Watchers, eating one point brownies, because those kinds of foods keep Insulin levels high, triglycerides high, inflammation high. Right. And, you know, you might have a day of sticking with your points, but good luck, you know, adhering over, you know, a many month time span. It's not going to work. That was a brilliant explanation because my next question was, well, what do I address first? Is it the insulin? Is it the triglycerides? Is it the inflammation? Yeah, that's probably sugar what- and flour. If you give exactly. up sugar and flour, it takes care of all of that. Processed foods, like you just basically yeah. need to stop eating ultra processed foods. And so when you say flour, you also mean alternative flours, almond flour, coconut flour. I do. Yeah. Sorry. I do. <laughs> Just admit and it. Yeah. <laughs> I do. And the reason is that if you think about it, if you think about the issue with flour, it's not that it comes from wheat or rice mm-hmm. or potatoes or almonds or coconuts. The issue with flour is that flour is made like cocaine is made. It's made like heroin is made. That's the whole processing refining thing, right? right? What is a drug? What is heroin? Why can you eat poppy seed bagels and fail a drug test and test positive for opium? I remember you saying that last time. That was wild. Right? So it's because when you take the inner essence of that poppy plant and you refine and purify it into a powdery substance, you've taken a harmless plant and you've created a drug. It's the same with the coca leaves off the coca plants, the coca bushes in the Andes Mountains. You can chew those all you want and not get high, not get addicted. But if you take the inner essence of those coca leaves and you refine and purify it into a fine white powder, you've turned it into a drug. And so 
this is why we can't eat flour no matter the source. We can eat the whole real plant though. Right. Eat your almonds, eat your coconuts, right. eat your rice, eat your potatoes, eat your beets, eat your corn. Don't eat flour, don't eat sugar. And by sugar, do you also mean maple syrup, raw honey? I do. And that actually is just because once someone has been acclimated, their taste buds and brain have been acclimated to ultra processed foods. Unfortunately, the sweet taste buds on the tongue have direct connections to the addiction centers in the brain. Right. And now anything that's that sweet will trigger it. So unfortunately, I do mean no honey, no molasses, no stevia. I'm sorry, even stevia yep. will trigger those sweet taste buds and kick off that dopamine response in the nucleus accumbens keep the brain from healing and keep the cravings alive. So all artificial sweeteners are out, all stevia and all sweeteners are out. And that also means no dried fruit. Mm. I mean, just think about the difference between eating, you know, 10 dried apricots or 10 whole apricots, right? right? right. And you see pretty quickly like, oh yeah, no dried fruit. Yeah. Well, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I think that's such an amazing place to end it. You've given us so much valuable information. And I don't doubt that this is going to be another very popular episode that our audience and our community downloads. I have one thing I want to share please, before we go. Please do. And then you have one thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I want to share that everyone's talking about these semaglutide drugs. Yes. Wagovi, oh my God. Let's Ozempic. please go there. Yes. Okay. So the data from Brightline Eating look exactly like the data from semaglutide drugs. So meaning we help people lose. I'm going to just see if I can, can I just share my screen or I don't even know if people won't be able to they see it. They probably won't right? be able to see it. Yeah. But you can okay. share. Okay. So the data from Brightline Eating, people lose weight as fast, keep it off as well as semaglutide drugs. Like if you're looking to lose that much weight, you can go take Wagovi. You can go take Ozempic. It costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It has side effects. It's got these amazing effects of curbing appetite and squelching addiction. Something about those semaglutide drugs is squelching the addictive response in the reward pathways of the brain, leading people to crave food less, but also Eat less, less alcohol, less cigarettes. Yeah. 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 And Brightline Eating does the same thing behaviorally. So people lose... 15 to 17% of their starting body weight and keep that weight off. Now with semaglutide drugs, you gain the weight back if you stop taking the drug. Right. In bright line eating, our data show that you keep the weight off. And our side effects are things like more happiness, more energy, more feelings of being loved, supported, and connected in the world and le less depression. So yep. our side effects are pretty pretty badass if you compare them to the semaglutide drug sure. side effects of like thyroid cancer and intestinal blockage. But Anyway, I've got no judgment for anyone who takes a semaglutide drug. I get it as someone who has struggled with food so much, like why you would just want support yep. getting less hunger, less cravings on board. I just wanted to say the Brightline data are that strong. That is fantastic. I am so thankful that you brought that up because it is a massive craze now with these forms of medication. And we don't really know what the long-term side effects is going to look like. And that's pretty scary. Yeah, I think the intestinal stuff is concerning, yeah. right? And also the bone and muscle loss mm. being significantly greater than would be expected from just the weight loss that they're experiencing. Right. That's concerning too because, yes. you know, muscle atrophy is like 
that's a big longevity thing, yeah. right? Yep. Like the amount of muscle that you maintain later in life Absolutely. is one of the biggest predictors of longevity. So you don't want anything that eats away your muscles and your bones. That's scary. That's Thank you again so much for bringing that up. Now, would someone benefit from following Bright Line Eating if they have 10 pounds to lose? Or is it more so somebody who is, you know, 30, 40, 50 plus pounds? What What does that look like? It's got nothing to do with that. So people benefit from Brightline eating most when they're a seven or higher on the food addiction susceptibility mm. scale. So that scale goes from one to 10 and they can take the quiz at foodaddictionquiz.com, okay. foodaddictionquiz.com. So if you're a one or a two or a three or a four, and you've got 50 pounds to lose because those people exist. It's not really an addiction issue, but it's just a weight issue. They just have a body that that is predisposed to socking on weight. Right. Maybe they have 100 pounds to lose. That happens too. Bright line eating could be a fit for you if you like and want a structured solution that's going to solve your weight problem right. and you just want it for that reason. But you're going to be in a community of people who have more addictable brains than you and they're going to be talking about it as an addiction thing and you might feel a little bit like a fish out of water. Got it. If you're a seven, eight, nine, ten on the food addiction susceptibility scale, you're going to feel like you finally met your people and you're mm. finally coming home. And you might have no weight to lose, but you're a 10 on the scale and on the food addiction scale, right? 10 out of 10. And you're maintaining that healthy BMI by running 10 miles and obsessing about the non-fat cup of frozen yogurt you're going to allow yourself after your run and then going to run another 10 miles just to be safe, right? right? right. And so you might be mad as a cut snake when it comes to your food <laughs> and you might need bright line eating and come in for the piece, Got it. not just for the weight loss. So five, 10 pounds, absolutely, you might need bright line eating. It's no fun obsessing your whole life about what you've eaten or not eaten, yeah. even if you're managing to control your intake to the point where you don't have a weight problem, right. right? So we set people free and help them lose their weight. So people come to us no matter how much weight they have to lose if they're a seven or higher on that scale. So foodaddictionquiz.com. Amazing. Well, we will make sure to have that in the show notes. And outside of that, where can our listeners find your new book, connect more with you, Brightline Eating, all of the things? Yeah, brightlineeating.com. I mean, the books will be at Barnes & Noble, you know, at Amazon, all the places you buy books. It's the fourth book. So there's four books. The first book is Brightline Eating, mm -hmm. which has a great outline of the science that we've been talking about, the yep. dopamine, the leptin, all that cool stuff. The second book is a cookbook. The third book is called Resume, and that's spelled R-E-Z-O-O-M, and it's all about relapse, like mm -hmm. what to do when you relapse, if you're a chronic relapser, how to navigate that, how to actually orient toward your food journey so you're inoculated against relapse and you're not on a yo-yo crash and burn cycle anymore. Right. That's what that book is about. And then the fourth book is The Daily Reader, so on this bright day. So you could check out the books. If you want to actually do Brightline Eating, you want to get into our program, you want to go to brightlineeating.com and we have boot camps starting regularly. And the Brightline Eating Boot Camp is a 10-week program that will completely change your life and you'll lose a ton of weight, you'll make a lot of friends, you'll feel better in every way and there's nothing like it in the weight loss world. And oh, by the way, if you're like 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and you feel like it's just harder to lose weight as you age. You'll be relieved to know that our data show that people in the second half of life lose weight as readily, fast, and easily as people in their 20s and 30s. 
because when you stop eating sugar and flour and you're not jerking around your insulin as much, the loss of estrogen that facilitates the effectiveness of insulin doesn't matter as much. And so it levels the playing field. So all that difficulty you've been having losing weight, you know, because you're 60 or 70 years old or whatever, it's gone. In bright line eating, you lose weight just as fast as if you were 20 years old again. So that's pretty cool. Wow. These are all published studies, by the way. I publish in peer-reviewed scientific journals, all this stuff. And if you want to see our publications, you can go to brightlineeating.com and scroll to the very bottom and click on publications and read our science. We're not just making this stuff up. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I know from the last recording, we had a lot of people from our community reach out to me saying they went to join Brightline and they've had some amazing success. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time, your energy, your story, for all of your work, for everything that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Samantha. It's been wonderful to be back with you. And thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Be sure to stay connected with Susan over on Instagram and Brightline Eating as they will be launching their weight loss program in the new year if that is something that you are interested in being a part of. We'd love it if you can share this episode with your friends and family, tag me in it, and if you have any questions, connect with me over on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Witch. Thanks for being with me today. Have a great day.